a Bible, we'll be opening up to Psalm 119 for the final time in our study uh, that we're calling Your Word. Um, it's called Your Word because David uses that phrase over and over and over again in this psalm, uh, talking to God about His Word, uh, which is a psalm that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, um, and explain that it's a love letter to God's Word. It's uh, a form of praise all about uh, and all about God's Word, extolling God for the gift of His Word, the revelation, the inspiration that we are fortunate to have um, in its complete form, uh, which is something that David's generation didn't even have. They just had a piece of it. Um, but if you would open up Psalm 119, we're going to read uh, verses 65 through 76. Now, uh, you may say, well, we've covered a lot of this psalm. Um, there are over 170 verses, so uh, we're cutting this series a little short in terms of not studying the whole psalm. Uh, we'll, we'll get through uh, uh, pretty far into the psalm. We're going to jump around a few places today. Um, but I encourage you, if you haven't already, um, I, I wanted to kind of leave you just with hopefully wanting more of this psalm. Um, because we're just, again, going to be covering, covering barely half or more of it. Uh, I, I encourage you to read the whole psalm, spend time studying this, uh, this amazing uh, work of art where David pulls from all different uh, forms of literature to bring, uh, to put together this love letter to God and his word. And hopefully we'll leave today with the same passion and the same, uh, same love for the word that David had and writes about. At least that's the goal, and I hope that that's your goal uh, with, uh, in, our, in our time of worship today. Psalm 119, verse 65, uh, this stanza, we'll read uh, this stanza and then about half of the next one. David says, You have dealt with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. I know, O oh Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let, I pray, your merciful kindness or your steadfast love be for my comfort according to your word to your servant. Some awesome verses we'll cover uh, as many as we can this morning. I hope that I've intrigued you a little bit just by reading some of these um, already today. But I, I want to begin our time by asking you a question that will lead us into what I believe David is, is really focusing on in this stanza that we have read. Have you ever been promised something or have you ever promised something that changed your perspective or your attitude? As in, have you ever given someone your promise or received a promise from someone and that changed the way you looked at them or changed the way they looked at you or changed the situation, it changed your attitude, it changed your perspective? 
Now, promises are something that we become familiar with very early in life, or at least that was my personal experience. I have a hunch that it's the same for everyone. I think promises are something that we have, we just think we've always known about them, but there was some point in our past, probably your childhood, where somebody explained a promise to you, or somebody explained to you what it means to make or keep a promise. Now, uh, I think a lot of us learned about promises through some means of extortion, and let me explain. Um, somebody, maybe an older sibling, maybe a friend, a classmate, uh, wanted us to promise them something, and in the process, they had to explain to us what it meant to make a promise and what it meant to keep. A promise. And kids, we sometimes struggle with that, right? Adults struggle with that too. Uh, but I hope this is tracking with everybody today because I think we all can remember maybe back to that first conversation or that conversation with a friend, a sibling, somebody in our childhood where somebody explained to us what it meant to make a promise and what it meant to keep a promise. And maybe you learned about it in church. But regardless, um, I can remember being very little and having it explained to me by probably one of my sisters or one of my cousins. Um, I really can't place it, but I can kind of relive the scenario in my mind and, and, and when, I, when I kind of think about it. I remember being told or being you know, implored, I want you to promise me that you won't tell somebody about this. Probably somebody broke something or somebody did something they weren't supposed to do, right? And, and this happened to you, I'm sure. Maybe somebody an older sibling or younger sibling, um, usually there's some bartering involved. There's some, hey, if you won't, I won't involved. But essentially it's, hey, I need you to promise me that you won't tell, or I need you to promise me that you'll keep this secret, or I need you to promise me that you're going to do this for me. And when, somebody, when I need you to back me up or to step up for me, I need to know that you're going to do that. Now, you know, adults, we make those kind of converse, have those kind of conversations, but there's more at stake. When we're kids, we're just worried about getting in trouble, worried about getting time out or getting, you know, getting somebody to fuss at us. And, you know, we're, we're a lot more worried than we are actually are the consequences, you know, would be uh, would be to deal with. But that's how it is when we're kids. But we ask someone, "Will you promise me, and I remember those conversations. I had a few of them right when I was little. And I remember being told, I need you to promise me this. And, and I remember at one point asking you, what does that mean to give somebody or to make somebody a promise and it was explained to me that a promise is a commitment it's a guarantee it's assurance that you will do what you said you would do pretty simple right now, as kids, we can be pretty relentless and ruthless about getting our way. Um, so usually when two kids make a deal, there's some wild expressing uh, way of expressing that promise or extorting um, that promise. Whether it's a pinky promise or something else, I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember somebody pulling a hair out of my arm. I don't know if that was part of the promise or not. It might have just been part of somebody being mean to me. That happened a lot when I was a kid. Um, so probably explains a lot about me today. But uh, I remember, there, there, you know, and maybe you had your own little thing that you used to do to somebody. Hey, you know, give me your word and, and give me this for, you know, assurance or for guarantee. And, and I don't know what it was for you, but we probably all can remember something like that. Um, I, I think I remember um, back when we promised, uh, I remember promising something to somebody or receiving that promise. I remember as a kid, when I made somebody a promise, they would always just be really incessant about asking me, hey, are you going to keep that? Or did you tell somebody? Or have you, you know, did you spill it or not? And, and you know, I would say, no, no, I've kept my promise. I, and I also remember, you know, when I asked somebody to, to, to keep a promise, I would be so worried they would, that they would break that promise. And there's just that part of us that worries, and we kind of go with the promise, don't we? Um, asking if we keep the secret or if somebody had told. Now, another way that we discover promises from our parents 
Um, maybe you were asking your parents for something to do something and you were asking them a hundred times a minute and finally um, they attempted to bargain with you or, or they maybe they said, listen, I, you know, I'll do this for you or you know, after we do all this, we'll do that or if you do this, we'll do that. Um, maybe you remember that from your parents or your grandparents um, and I'm sure you probably responded like this a couple of times. Do you promise? You remember being that? Maybe you're still this way when, when, when your parents or somebody says, hey, we'll do this. Just hang on a little bit or spouse says this or friend says this. Maybe you're just so anxious about it. You're so focused on it. You want it so bad or you want to do something so bad. You kind of just incessantly and over and over again ask them that question. Do you promise? Now, maybe it's the reverse. Maybe this is how we were introduced to the concept. Maybe your mom or dad told you I promise to get you to calm down. Uh, and that's the funny thing about being told I promise. It does something to our brains, or at least it does something to mine. Uh, when someone promises us something, that they'll do something or give something or keep something, our brains become laser-focused on seeing that promise through. We hold on to that promise. We hold on to any promises, don't we? And, and, and I think that kind of makes it clear for us, and, and all of us know this, promises are powerful. They have the ability to really kind of get us in a trance where our minds focus on this or that to give us hope to cling to or something to, to lean on. Promises are something that have the power to change our perspective. Promises captivate our minds, especially when you're on the receiving end of a promise. But I think it's true as well when you make the promise, when we make a promise and are sincere about one. Uh, a piece of us goes with that promise and relies on us fulfilling that promise. If we so much as think about breaking that promise, we have to do some mental gymnastics to get out of it and rationalize it. And maybe you can argue that, uh, and it's proven, the more we do that, the easier it gets to do that. And that's, of course, true. But that only further proves the point of how powerful promises are. Promises have a special presiding, as in they kind of stick with you, they kind of have a presence about them. Promises have a presiding power over both promiser and promised. And I mean, this is especially true when you're given a promise, isn't it? Think about how it feels to be promised something relieving, exciting, intriguing. And if you wonder how much power that promise had, just think about how betrayed or hurt you feel when that promise is broken. It hurts our souls, doesn't it? That's how much power promises have, and that's how much power uh, they, they have over us. Now, it says to me that promises by nature appeal to our souls. Promises speak to our hearts in ways that few things do. That you and I, and I think every human being is like this, we cling to promises and, and in different ways. We are driven by promises. Uh, we, they instill hope in us, and they also can give us determination. So on two sides of the coin, when we have nothing to look forward to or feel good about, a promise made to us has the power to fill us with hope. Isn't it true that whenever you're down and when somebody promises you, hey, this is going to happen, I promise you, I'll make it happen, we'll make it work, I'm giving you my promise. When, we, when somebody does that to us, it fills us with hope, doesn't it? It gives us something to believe in, something to look forward to, it lifts our spirits up. On the flip side, a promise that we've made to someone has the power to fill our mind with determination and lead us not into temptation. That when we make a promise to somebody, there's this responsibility that comes along with it, isn't there? There's this alt that comes along with it. There's this sense of, I have to do that because I told someone I was going to do that. And I can't just bail out on that. 
So again, when we receive a promise, we have hope. When we make a promise, we kind of have a sense of responsibility, a sense of determination. And that kind of guides us away from saying yes to something that would break that promise or be contrary to that promise. When we're little, promises, and not just when we're little, but when we're adults as well. But I think this especially resonates when we're kids. Promises can be incentives to believe something. And promises can be incentives to behave a certain way. That promises incentivize beliefs when we feel like giving up. Promises incentivize behavior when we're tempted to do wrong. But this is true throughout our life. We receive and make bigger promises, much more is on the line. When you take a job, essentially you're making a promise with your employer. You're exchanging promises. I'll do this if you do this. And we kind of keep that deal. And if it, somebody breaks one side of the deal, then the promise is broken and the deal is off. Now, when we get married, it's all about exchanging promises. That's what our vows are at their core. So I think you can kind of say it this way. Promises are powerful exchanges. I'll do this and you'll do that. And, and, and hey, if I do this, you'll receive this. They're exchanges from one to another that incentivize both parties. One party believes, one party behaves. One party has hope, one party has determination. Powerful exchanges that incentivize both sides of the coin, promiser and promised. You know, it, it's hard to explain promises sometimes, but it's hard to ignore the power that they have. Now, there is something within all of us that knows and that feels the weight and the gravity of promise making and promise keeping. That you can go to people in every culture, from every tribe, every generation, and promises are something that everybody has some awareness of. And that we feel, whether the hope they give or the responsibility they give, we understand promises. Human beings at their core know the power of promises. Now, you want to know why I think this is so? You know why I think promises resonate so powerfully with us? Do you know why I think promises register so deeply with us? Why promises are hard to forget and why we take it so hard if they're broken? Why if we're the one who breaks one, we don't quickly forget that? I believe this is yet another thumbprint of God on our souls. I believe that this idea of promises being so core to who we are, this response to promises and this responsibility for promises is a, 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 a sign of and a reflection of and a proof of the thumbprint of God on our souls, on our hearts and on our minds. Because God at his very heart is a promise maker and a promise keeper. God at his heart, defining him in all the ways that we can. You can't get away from this reality and God would not want you to ignore or avoid this reality. He is a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. Now, this is the center of David's praise in our text today in Psalm 119. We've read through verse, the stanzas 9 and stanza 10 leading up to verse 76. And in this verse, David's making a request to God based on what he already knows and what he's hoping that we will know and we will experience. He praises God and his word for how it expresses the steadfast love of God and carries the steadfast promises of God. Now, you've probably heard before that God's word contains many promises, but I want to show you something that takes that to a whole other level that has the potential to change the way you perceive and receive God's word entirely. 
Maybe you've uh, got a book like this here. It's a supplementary book um, that, uh, that is titled A Hundred Promises in God's Word. Maybe you've got a book like that. Maybe you've got a book uh, of promises for today. All the promises from this book of the Bible or that book of the Bible. I have several books like this on my shelf. I've got digital copies of books. They're devotions that I read every day that are titled or in some way, shape, or form are about the promises of God. And those books are great. They are great re references. They're great supplements to God's word. Nothing wrong with those books. But I think many of us understand God's word as this intimidating book that happens to have some promises along the way. I think a lot of us think God's word is this exhaustive book of history and laws and rules and, and just confusion. And somewhere along the way, there are some promises that I'm glad somebody has picked out for me so I don't have to find them out myself. I think a lot of us think God's word is like that. It's this maze that some people are better at navigating than others. And sometimes we find a promise and we highlight it with the rest of it. It's Greek or Hebrew to me. And, and I want to attempt to rescue the Bible from that category if that's how it lands with you. If the Bible to you is a book that intimidates you, that overwhelms you, that confuses you, if the Bible is a book that you would rather pick up somebody else's kind of summary of it, and you would rather read the bold print or the, the bullet points, uh, nothing wrong with these things. But if the Bible is something that you've been told or you believe that just isn't something that's accessible to you, I want to rescue it from that category. There's a connection that's begging to be made here that I think is too big to not go ahead and address. Notice in verse 76, and this may be different in your Bibles, but New King James says, I pray your merciful kindness be my comfort according to your word to your servant. Now, this verse has some personalized undertones in it. That you can almost phrase it like this, and, and the English Standard Version puts it this way, which I think is really a better way to put it. David says, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise. Now, in Hebrew, the, the word for word is synonymous with the word for promise. That you could interchange word and promise almost any time you see that in the Bible. Now, this is a big deal. I believe that David is alluding to something pretty powerful in this verse and really informs what he means all along when he says your word. Now, think about this. In our vernacular, when somebody gives someone their word, when you give someone your word, what does it mean? It means you are making a promise to them, doesn't it? When you give someone your word, it means that you are committing to them that you're going to do something. You are promising to them. When we make a promise, we give someone our word. Now think about this. The Bible is God's word. It's not just contain the word of God. It is the word of God given to us. So if, if you have your Bible, even if you're holding a phone or whatever, that's fine too. Hold your Bible for just a minute. This Bible, all of it, front to back, it's God's Word. Every time you read it, every page you read, God is giving His Word to you. Do you understand where this is going? God's Word is His promise to you. 
His commitment to you. Have you ever thought about God's word like that? Doesn't that have the potential to change the way you handle this book if God's word in its entirety, not just a supplementary book on the side, but if the whole Bible is God's promise to you? We often think of the Bible as a textbook, it's a rule book. But what if God's word, what if God's word to us, alongside being revelation and inspiration, alongside being our inheritance, what if God's word is his promise to you? Does that not entice you to open it up a little more often, to search its pages a little bit more attentively, to give more eagerness and desire to your study of God's word? I hope it does. Of course, it's full of history. It's complete with commandments and instructions, which don't negate the aspect of promises. It's through those stories, it's through those commandments that we receive and are guided in God's promises all the more. The Bible is God's word to us. The Bible is God's promise to us. A promise that serves as our greatest resource. A promise that satisfies us as our greater portion. A promise that guarantees that God's way is superior in every way. God's word to us is communicated through several different forms and styles that can be summarized as promises from God. Promises that point to a life well spent for the glory of God and gain of his kingdom. You see, God's word doesn't just contain promises. And this is the big distinction that I'm making. God's word doesn't just contain a few promises. God's word, every word, is a promise. Because everything that God says is trustworthy. Now, here's the thing. It's easy to shake your head at some things that God says as trustworthy. But where we often fall short is we don't often agree that everything he says flies with what we want. Agrees with what we want. Agrees with our worldview. But what my goal is today is to convince us all and to bring to our attention that every word of God is a promise from God. And what if you begin to look at every word with that perspective, through that lens? What if we begin to understand that as God has made us a promise with a recipient of that promise? Now, Revelation chapter 19, 21 and 22, we hear this repeated again and again and again because the book is getting finished. The completion of the revelation is, is being given to John, who's added his book to the 66 library that we have leather bound or, or, or compiled for us. But listen to what Jesus says to John in Revelation 21 when everything's wrapping up. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. John is writing the last few words in what would be the completed word of God. And what does he tell us? These words are trustworthy and true. All of them, all of them. Even the ones that I don't like? Yes, even those. Even the ones that are a little bit sound out of date, out of touch. Even those are trustworthy. And true, in this next verse, man, it's big. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give. Say that with me. I will give. As 
To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. What an incredible summation of God's word. Many of us respect God's word, but we don't respond to it. Many of us tolerate it, but we don't trust it. Many of us believe things about it, but don't believe in it and don't behave according to it. Why is that? Come on. If God's word is his promise to you, what are we waiting for? Read that verse again. It is done. It's complete. To the thirsty, I will give without payment. Now, you may walk out of here thinking, well, I don't know what we need you for after I say this next little bit, but I'm going to say it because I believe this. I will never be a pastor and will never be a church that conceals God's revelation and inspiration behind some mystical experience or paywall. The sad thing is that appeals to people because the idea that we can go somewhere and experience something that can't be experienced anywhere else through anybody else. That appeals to our soul's desire for answers and hope. Religion is deceiving people by the thousands every day. They line up hoping and clinging to lives of spectacle and wonder. Religion is very convincing. The right music, the right speaker, the right experience can spellbound us into chasing after so much that never, and I repeat, never will give us what God's word alone can give us. The devil doesn't have to work through pagan religions in today's world. He works through churches to propose that if you do these right things, if you receive some amazing revelation from God, but don't worry if you don't, just follow these special people who have all the while the actual promise book remains shut. And that's tragic. People do this because they are addicted to deceiving people and gaining followings. But listen, my job as a pastor is not to say, look at me, I have something you'll never get. It's not my job. There's nothing that God has shown me that he cannot show you. Everybody that opens the word of God can receive the very same revelation of God as anybody standing up here with one of these microphones on. That God's word, what does he say? It is free to anybody that wants it. Not through some experience, not through some dream, not through some vision that you might be lucky enough to have one day, but through his complete finished word, his promise to you. And listen, I know how this works. A lot of Christians, they are used to going into some church and sitting in the back row and watching all the holy people do all the stuff. We kind of like knowing that we'll never be them. We like that they are them, and we kind of feel good around them, but we kind of feel bad about ourselves because we're not that holy. Listen, every single follower of Jesus has access to the full revelation of God. If we don't open it, it's just because we don't open it. If you read the New Testament, the apostles never tried to present some idea that they were holier than thou and had something that no one else could. They were preaching and writing down what God had given them as they were contributing to the New Testament. And the church's job is to equip the saints and facilitate this in whosoever wills. People, people laugh at me sometimes and I'm telling them, hey, listen, you can do this. 
I know God gives gifts and God gives people abilities. Of course, that's all part of his plan. But I say, hey, God can show you that. Oh, no, I can never get that out of the Bible, Justin. You just have something I don't. Listen, the Bible is the word of God, the breath of life. Open his word. He will breathe on you life. Paul says this to Titus, his protege. And hope of eternal life, which God never lies, promised before the ages began at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching. Paul says, hey, Titus, what I've been preaching, you can do too. You can have it too. It's right here. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? If it's true, that's incredible. Do you know what that means? That means that there's been a democratization and accessibility of God's word. Anybody can open up this book and know as much about him as their heart has capacity for. The question is, does your heart have room? Have you made room? Have you prioritized making room? Listen, I don't ever want to be a pastor where people think, well, man, I don't have to know it because he knows it for me. No, God forbid that. I want to raise a generation of Christians, and as a pastor, I want us to be a generation of Christians and be a church full of people that knows God's word is his promise to me, to you, to all of us. That's what your heart is longing for. Don't be fooled by religion that says maybe someday you'll get there, or by the world that says there's all these other distractions. Jesus went, remember how many times Jesus would tell people, hey, get out of line, come follow me. Remember that festival that he went to in Jerusalem when they were all gathered around the, 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 big, you know, the feast, the, the fountain, where they were hoping something would happen. They were hoping they would receive an oracle from God. And then Jesus stands up at the feast that last day in John 7 and says, cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Because I will put into his heart the word of God. Promise from God to him or to her. You know, the goal of this entire series or my goal of this entire study has been to cause us to ring out our Bibles. Soaking up every word of God. And come into his house week after week with questions, anticipation that more might be drawn from it. I think we can be a church like that. I think we already are a church like that, but I think we can be even more a church like that. Listen, this isn't something that, you know, I don't have anything that anybody else doesn't have and I'm not special for it, but when I was growing up, I, I destroyed, not in a negative way, I destroyed Bibles because I would read them so much. And here's why. Because I realized that there was as much available as I was willing to. To search for and receive. I have the Bible that are in pieces. Because I, I just couldn't stop reading. And I believe, and you know, it's a shame I haven't tore one up in a while. We get older, we lose time, we get distracted, we get more things going on. But church, we should always be at that place. Where we are literally like a washcloth wringing out the word of God. For what is available to us. Every promise is a trustworthy word from God. A 
good for application word from God. Every story is a promise because they show God's interest, investment, and intervening power. Every narrative, every historical account shows God's intervening power, shows God's investment in the people just like us. Why, why should you read the stories? Because they show God is interested in people like you. Every commandment is a promise because they reflect God's will. Knowing the commandments, obeying the commandments are how we get into the will of God. It's a promise from God to you. This is how you get into my will. Every prophecy is a promise because they reveal God's plan and they give us confidence that God has a plan when we don't know what it is. Every word is a promise because they communicate a peace to receive and a pathway to follow. They all communicate God's steadfast love in some way. The phrase merciful kindness is often repeated in the Bible. The phrase steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. I don't want to spit on anybody, so I'm going to reserve the phlegm. The Hebrew word hesed, that phrase in your Bible's merciful kindness is one Hebrew word. And maybe your Bible says steadfast love, but that's one word in Hebrew, hesed, which means God's covenant kindness, God's covenant faithfulness. You know what this means? God doesn't just have love for his people. He is made of this love for his people. That's what it means when the, when the Bible says God has a steadfast love for his people. It endures forever and ever and ever. God is not just a possessor of this love. He is composed of this love. What does 1 John 4 tell us? God is this love. So this steadfast love isn't just an attribute of God. It's the full expression of God, the composition of God. So we've learned a few things about this 76th verse or from this 76th verse. God is full of steadfast love for us and his word is his promise to us. And as we close, it was important that this be solidified for us because it helps inform the rest of David's praises, particularly when, with what he says and these stanzas about God and his word. We get the sense from David that he's welcoming God's direction and God's correction over his life. He admits that his nature is opposing the things of God. And if we oppose the things of God, we aren't just disagreeing with him. It's bigger than that. We're actually distancing ourselves from his promises, from his love. And this is why being a student of God's love is so essential. Lest we become a student of something else. On one occasion, many people turned away from following Jesus and he asked his disciples, do you want to leave as well? And Peter makes this brilliant statement. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter confesses that every heart has a vacuum in it for guidance, for promises. We're like, we're still that little kid that wants somebody to say, I promise. And we are looking for someone to fill that void, to fill that hole. We're looking for something to be vacuumed into our hearts. We want to follow somebody who can promise us what we need. That's why we're so easily deceived by people in this world. David confesses, Peter confesses, David tells us God's word is our greater promise. David himself had fallen for counterfeit and counterfeits plenty of times in different seasons and different times of his life. 
That's why David could write with authority that God's, about God's word. And it's why throughout this stanza that we read, verse 66, verse 68, and verse 73, we hear David say, teach me, teach me, give me. David did not want to lose sight of these promises. Even worse, he did not want to substitute them. You hear that? David knew his heart was a vacuum. And he had to continue to fill it with God and God's word. You know, we talk about David being a man who loved God, but David was also a well-documented backslider, to use the old phrase. In times of success, David forgot the Lord. In times of temptation, David forsook the Lord. And that's why, you should, that's why we should pay special attention to verses 67 and 71. Listen to what David says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Underline, but now. Verse 73, or verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. You say good for you, David, not for me. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may, underline, that I may learn your statutes. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't feel so good about those verses when I first look at them. Oh, I'd never need affliction to keep me following the Lord. I'd never lose sight or substitute God's word. I don't need to be afflicted in order to remember him. I don't know about you, David, but I don't need that. David writes, after decades of being all over the place in his walk with God, he writes as someone thankful that God used affliction to renew and grow his affection for his word. David says, listen closely, our flesh and our fallen world's nature, we oppose God, we reject him, we resist him, we rebel against him. David tells us that hardships and trials are meant to remind us that we must cling to God lest we fall away, lest we run away. Do you look at your trials like that? Do you draw a straight line from your trial to your devotion to God and His Word? Should you? Here's what David is telling us. Trials are ordained. You might not like that word. I'm not saying they're called. I mean that God lays His hands on them and says, I'm using them for this. Trials are ordained by God to increase our knowledge of and confidence in God's promises. And to prevent us from turning to any counterfeit promises. Is that not what David says in verse 67? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. As in God used the affliction to increase his knowledge and increase his confidence in. Verse 71, it is good that I have been afflicted. That I might learn your statutes as in they're going to keep me from turning to counterfeits. Isn't this kind of big? We often associate God with our successes. We often consider our successes reflection of God's promises. But should we think the same things about our sufferings? David says so. God's promises can put in proper perspective our success and our sufferings. David was a man that knew great success, but also a man that knew his share of sufferings, trials, and persecution. And if what verse 67 and 71 are telling us is true, David says trials are meant to be both reactive and proactive. 
Sometimes trials are God's patient reaction to our wondering to bring us back. Other times they're his sovereign proaction to keep us from falling. What if we begin to look at every trial we face through these two lens? You know why I think David mentions this in this section about God's promises, God's faithfulness, God's kindness? At first it may seem out of place, but I think it's perfect for this conversation. David wants us to know that we can trust God at all times. God's word offers guidance in every season, promises for every occasion, even when we feel like God may be absent or silent, even when we feel like God has let us down, even when we feel like everything is against us. David assures God's promises remain to you. Nobody's shut the book. No one's turned them away from you. No one's took them from you. In fact, they may be meant to put an exclamation point on those promises. That those trials prime us and refine us to receive and respond to God's promises. That's what David is saying when he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It is good that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Could it be the trials, the troubles, and the pain that God has allowed to come upon us? It's for a purpose that we might come to know and trust God as the promise maker and promise keeper the Bible reveals he is. Don't take my word for it. Take David's word for it. Take Peter's word for it. 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you to test you as, something, as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may, very important, also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. When, not if, when, as in there's a purpose. And I say all this to, to say this. This world often brings upon us the worst of problems and pain. So that. And I, I hope I don't lose you at that first, that first paragraph. So that. God can remind us of his greater promises and reveal his greater power to us and in us. Am I saying that's the reason behind every trial? Not necessarily, but I am saying that in every trial there is redemption. There's an opportunity for renewal and revival from God and his word. I hope our response today is to cling to God's promises in spite of our pain, in spite of our problems, in spite of our losses. Sometimes we get a false security from this world. And I think that's why God peels back the blankets and layers of this world in order that we might place our faith in better promises. God's promises are so good, so much better than what this world gives us. They have the ability and power to cause us to be thankful for whatever has caused us to open up and receive them, even if it took affliction to get us there. Do you believe that? Let me ask you this. What's your relationship with God in His Word? What's it look like? We can fake and feign our relationship with God, but you can't fake a relationship with His Word. We either have it or we don't. We've learned over the past few weeks that God's word is our greater resource, our greater portion, our greater promise. God's revealed his covenant kindness to us, his commitment to us. He's committed 
by preserving His Word for us and uses the church to preach and proclaim His Word, the opportunities for us to come under and in under it and Him are many. David says God leverages this fallen world to constantly remind us and call us to Him. So the question is, are you clinging to God's promises or are you clinging to the world's promises? What about the promise that God sent His Son his word made flesh to save you and reconcile you to him. Down in verse 81, David says, My soul thanks for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fell from searching your word, saying, When will you comfort me? And the answer is given to us in that Jesus Christ saves us from hell. He saves us from judgment. He saves us from eternal separation. And he gives us a life of joy, peace, and purpose, free of charge. But that promise makes a tremendous impact on our heart. We can't ignore its call over us. Nothing we give up will ever compare to what he did for us. A personal relationship with him requires that we turn his word, turn to his word and let his spirit teach us and lead us. That is our only hope. That is our only comfort. So church, the question is, are we resting in God's promises? Are we following God to intervene and uh, allowing God to intervene in our lives like he did in the stories of the Bible? Are we following God's commandments so that he so that we will be in his will? Are we resting his pro in his prophetic plans when the world gives us a reason to worry? Are we clinging to every word for peace to receive and a pathway to walk in? Are we seeing his promises to you? Come alive in you. Are you seeing his promises to you come alive in you? How can you, can you answer that question? Are you seeing his promises to you come alive in you? Two verses I want to read and we're done. Verse 97, David says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Can you say those two things? Do you mean those two things if you say them? Maybe the affliction you faced isn't in vain. Maybe it's that you might gain a heart for his word. Maybe God's trying to show you that his word is your greater promise, that you should meditate on it day and night. Use it as a lamp. Use it as a light. In verse 106, David says, I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your word. How many of you today would be willing to say that very same, make that very same vow? I have sworn and can confirm I will keep your word. I'll make a vow today that I'm going to commit to reading God's word, knowing God's word, following God's word. For the joy, the peace, the purpose it brings to our life. For the good, the gain, the glory it brings to God and His kingdom. You know, this is what our generation is missing, I truly believe. Over the past year, we have seen widespread affliction on our world. In every way possible. The church has not been spared either. Perhaps there was a reason for it. So that we might forsake empty promises 
and cling to the greater promises found only in Jesus and his word.